postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. A world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up white flag and saying, Ah! It's all the secular people's fault and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic campaign. How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism Redesigned. Hey everyone, it's Pastor Marcus here and I want to welcome you back to the Story Church Podcast for another week uh, where we get to talk about some crazy cool stuff related to church, related to the local Adventist church and our mission in our contemporary culture uh, in the world today. And this week I want to touch on a topic that is on the global consciousness um, right now, something that's so big that it's erupting everywhere, and that is the conversation on racism. And look, it's no surprise, you guys are all aware of the incredible amount of protests that are taking place uh, beginning in the U.S. and spreading um, throughout the Western Western um, world uh, as of late. And so I've been thinking about this and sharing some thoughts about it um, online in the last few days, and I thought, you know what, this is a brilliant opportunity to sit down and have a bit more of a fleshed-out conversation on this. And so I'm thankful because um, today I'm actually joined by a friend of mine. We went to Southern Adventist University together, um, and she's now a pastor. Um, Tina Carragher, welcome, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It is good to have you here, Tina. Um, we, like, I, like I mentioned earlier, we, we went to Southern together. We did uh, theology together. Um, and then after Southern, uh, obviously, I came to Australia. Um, you went to Oakwood, directly to Oakwood, or did you go to Andrews first? Uh, I went to Andrews first. Okay, okay. And then you worked at Oakwood for some time. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, let me pause you there um, because I want to just give you an opportunity to tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, and so, yeah, just in the next few minutes, tell us about the, uh, the legend of Tina Carragher. Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> the legend. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, uh, as, as you have stated, uh, yes, we did go to Southern together and, uh, um, and when, while you went off to Australia, um, I was, got sponsored to Andrews Theological Seminary by South Central Conference. I am the first woman they've ever sponsored to seminary. Uh, and so I spent two years at Andrews. And then right towards the my last semester at Andrews, I received a phone call from the president, then Elder Dana Edmond, letting me know that uh, as he was finishing his last uh, term as president, that he was gonna be placing me as an associate pastor at the Oakwood University Church with Dr. Carlton P. Bird. So uh, after I graduated from Andrews, um, and that was totally unexpected. I did not expect, I didn't know where I was gonna go, but I definitely did not expect I was gonna end up at Oakwood. Um, <laughs> and so I ended up becoming um, a part of the pastoral staff of Oakwood University Church. And I spent two and a half years there. And then I got a, a phone call from the next <laughs> conference president letting me know that now was the time for me to go solo. Woo. They felt that uh, I, I had had enough time 
uh, under a great leader. And now they wanted to, you know, see me uh, utilize my God-given capacities as a pastor on my own in my own church. So now I am the pastor of the First Seventh-day Adventist Church in Springfield, Tennessee, a wonderful congregation that God is truly blessing. I was installed there in August of 2019, and I've been loving it ever since. That is awesome. That is awesome. Wow. This is a huge story there. Like it's, it's so much, you know, like like going to Andrews and then uh, working with Carlton at, at Oakwood. Um, there's probably a gazillion things within that experience itself that we could film a few episodes on. Things you've learned in your internship, the bumps and the bruises along the way. Um, and, and also being on your own now and leading your own church and, um, and being back in Tennessee. Um, yes. with our, with our time today, I, I wanted to focus obviously on this really heavy theme, right? This really heavy topic. And, and I was actually thinking about it over the last few days and thinking like, um, cause I, I've been sharing a little bit about, um, Adventism's prophetic identity and, and what that means for us as a community of people in the chaos that is currently unfolding all around us. Um, and then I thought, you know what? I got to get Tina on the podcast, man. I got to get Tina on the podcast because Tina is a talented, spiritual, insightful, uh, articulate pastor who is going to have something powerful to say to this space. So no pressure, no pressure, Tina. <laughs> um, but uh, look, I really appreciate having you on um, on the show today. Now, before we go into that, because that's a heavy topic, before we go into that, I just want to ask uh, 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 probably a bit more of a silly question just to get to just to get to know the uh, the mind, the soul of Tina a little more. Uh, we've just gone through this pandemic. In fact, it's it's not actually over. Um, yeah. they're, they're kind of reopening things for the sake of the economy, but it's, it's still ongoing. Uh, but I'm curious, what has been the thing you've enjoyed the most in, um, what's the word I'm looking for? So the pandemic caused like this whole shutdown, you know, things closed up and, you know, people staying at home all the time. Was there anything in that whole scenario that you were like, oh, I like this? Yes. Um, and I, and this is the honest to God truth. What I have enjoyed the most under this pandemic has been that the gospel preaching has become center stage. Mm. Um, as a pastor, uh, you know, when we are leading out our worship services, our services are filled with so much stuff. Mm. And they're not necessarily bad things. I mean, we have announcements. Those are important so people can stay informed about what's happening with the church. We have praise and worship. Music is, you know, important. I love music. I'm also a singer. Uh, you got children's story. You have an accessory prayer, the collecting of tithe and offering. But we have our worship services, at least in the uh, uh, the Black uh, church context, generally are, they're long. We like to stay in church for a minute. <laughs> Yeah, man, I used to go to this, I used to go to African-American church in Jersey. Um, yeah. I forget what the name was, but yeah, they, it would start at 10 a.m. And at 2 p.m. you're still, you know, like, yes. this, and, and, yes. and it's not like the service ended at 12 and you went to potluck. No, you were still in the service at 2 p.m. In the service, yes. <laughs> and so uh, what I have enjoyed is seeing a super condensed mm. uh, worship uh, service online thing where the where preaching the preaching of the gospel has become the main thing and uh because my even though i love music and i love singing um 
at the end of the day, there are many times I will speed, I will, I will bypass everything else in the worship service just to get to the word. Mm. And I think that I've appreciated um, one that the that gospel preaching has become center stage, so it is the focal point uh, on Sabbath. Number two, I've appreciated for those who have risen to the occasion that I'm being exposed to pastors, uh, pastoral preaching that I've not even heard. So there were some guys uh, and some women who had no website, who had no, weren't putting anything online. And even, even some of my colleagues in my own conference. And so under this pandemic, I'm being exposed to their, I mean, when we have events in our church, we tend to reuse the same people over mm. and over again, the same headliners, but there's a whole lot of talent in Adventism, mm. but a whole lot of talent that you don't see because they don't get the platform. They don't get the airtime. Well, now guess what? Everybody's a televangelist. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody has a platform now. And yeah. so I'm being able to see that man, We've got some skills in this conference, mm. people who are being overlooked. And it's a shame that this had to happen in order for us to see all of that. But that's one thing that I'm truly grateful for. Mm. I love it. I, I got to agree with you on that, man. Like um, looking at the way we do church and the way we organize ourselves, the way we engineer our worship space and our worship time um, is something that, you know, I've been questioning it for a while because not because there's anything evil about it. You know, there's there's nothing necessarily evil with it, but just, um, you know, just basic questions because I'm that guy, you know, I like to question things. And so do we have to do it this way? You know, is it necessary or, or are we yeah. just repeating it because it's the way we've always done it um, and asking questions that normally would would get you in trouble. <laughs> um, but yeah. yeah, ever since this thing hit, it's almost like we're forced to sit back and and ask ourselves what really matters here mm. you know like what's actually important here yeah. and yes. um even as a preacher you know um i sit down and record a live stream there there isn't an audience of approving smiles and amens yeah. you know it's yeah. just like yeah. i don't know if anyone is even uh, what's yeah. the word I'm looking for enjoying what i'm saying and so That's i've had right. to revisit preaching as as an act for an audience of one, right? Like where I need to make sure that in my preaching, God is being pleased. That's right. Because That's there's right. no audience to give me feedback and say, oh yeah, amen. You know, like it's just, yes. it's just the screen. And so yes. for me, it's like, if God is being pleased, that's, that's all that right. matters. And and when we that's go back right. to having services and having people in, in that's a lesson that I'm going to take with me. Um, that's right. You know, not that I didn't know it before, but it's just really hit me even more. It's like, yeah. you know, preach for an audience of one and, yes. um, you know, yeah. Anyways, wow. We can, we can, we can go down that track for a while, but yeah, that's, that's awesome. I love it. I love it. All right, Tina, let's dive into this, man. This is, um, yeah. this is an extremely, extremely wild year, 2020, yeah. 2020. Yeah. I mean, seriously, like <laughs> what is going on, dude? Like we started a new decade and everybody's all souped like, oh yeah, woohoo, you know, new decade is going to be great. It's going to be awesome. And then we yeah. have this pandemic. Um, yeah. And of course we've had the riots that have been taking place lately. And, um, and then I just saw an article the other day, a friend of mine shared it with the heading, um, what else you got 2020? And it was about some asteroid that was going to come really close to earth. <laughs> I think it was supposed to have happened last Saturday too. 
Um, and then I saw something from NASA with like the activity in the sun is getting like the the, the, the radiation is getting too strong. And mm -hmm. if it gets if it gets really, you know, if it gets significantly stronger, it can shut down all of our GPSs and radio signals. And, <laughs> and I'm just like, what is going on? Yo? So anyways, um, right now, the big conversation is is the the protests mm -hmm. that are taking place um, all over the U.S. They've spilled over into the U.K., France, Australia has seen some historic record-breaking numbers as well of people, you know, protesting. And, and the, the catalyst for this, you know, obviously there's not just one thing. Um, people are protesting a pattern, um, a historic pattern of oppression. But George Floyd was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. You know, it was, it was, the, it was the thing that really set it off. Um, and so I want to know just from your perspective, um, being an African-American and, and a person of faith, um, how are you processing the, the tensions that are going on in your communities um, and just in the world as a whole right now? Oh, man, how am I processing? Um, so when I watched the George Floyd video, um, you know, I, I try to, the Lord has really had to help me uh, balance my emotions when it comes to seeing disturbing images and scenes like that. Mm. Um, because if I'm not careful, I can end up on an extreme that God does not want me to be on, where I end up hating people that God does not want me to hate. Mm. So... As a black person in America, I was deeply upset and deeply disturbed. Um, and I understand, I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm frustrated, I'm exhausted because that is a regular occurrence. And just knowing that, so I'm already <laughs> made up in my mind that, you know, is there going to be justice? I don't think so. And that's the sad part, it, it, that it doesn't matter how, what really matters in this country is, um, is, is perception, but it's never the perception of how black people feel in their experiences. It's always the white perception that matters. And that's a very frustrating part as a black person in America. The flip side is I'm a Christian, so right? And so my Christianity trumps everything, even, you know, my, my frustrations. And so I have found myself on one end angry and upset, which are, which is, you know, justifiably so, but then the other hand, okay, how does God want me to respond in, in this time? And I think that as I've been balancing my own emotions, but then I'm also paying attention to my, uh, my colleagues and, and watching the news and seeing how other people are reacting. I think that I'm finding myself also equally concerned that we don't swing to the other end of the pendulum. Mm. Hate to hate is solves nothing. Mm. Um, and, and, uh, and Christ does want, I mean, Christ is affected by what's happening, but the solution isn't to, okay, well, since you guys do it like this and we're going to do you like that, that's mm. not a solution for anything. So I've just been trying to balance, okay, how, what is at the end of the day, racism is really a gospel issue. It's an issue of the heart. And so 
um, just really trying to pay attention to, okay, I have a right to feel what I'm feeling, but at the end of the day, I, I mean, if anything, it should, it drives me more to preach against sin, to mm. sin in all of its forms, that there's no, nothing that is justifiable and acceptable to God, nothing at all. Mm. Nobody gets a pass. No, there's no excuse for anything. So how am I processing it? I'm processing it through trying to, uh, feeling the um, frustrations that I feel and the realities that I experience as a black person in this country with two black sons, mm. knowing that they can go through the, like r real talk. I took my, I take my kids to the park every week. Right. And I like taking them to different parks. And um, there was one time I took them to a park in a more affluent part of Nashville. And um, while I'm watching them play, a white woman is walking by on the sidewalk. And I got a little bit nervous for a moment because I'm thinking to myself, I don't know how she's processing us right about now. If she processes me as a person who has no right to be in the area, I could end up like anybody else getting the cops calling them for no reason, mm. just for being black, just for looking like I'm suspicious when I'm literally not doing nothing mm. but letting my kids play. Um, and so that fear is real. The fear is real. It's there. Um, and I'm sensitive to it. And the more that I see these things happening and there's no justice taking place, um, it's, it's frustrating, but at the same time, um, I know that God has a solution for all things. And so I just kind of keep myself resolved in that, in that. Front. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned that Tina, because, you know, one of the things that I've been interacting with lately is the, the balance in scripture, the tension in scripture, uh, between, uh, especially, you know, prophetically, there's a tension in prophecy between the promise and the protest, right? And and yes. so it's it's there's a sense in which there's a call for justice um, mm -hmm. that you see in, in, in the prophetic narrative. Um, mm -hmm. But it's always linked to the promise of the new kingdom, right? It's always linked to the promise of of of, of redemption. And you can't really separate the two because if and 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 I think this is you know th there's another question that came to mind that I'll ask um, in a second here, but um, you know I'm looking at like purely political solutions are never really solutions, like mm -hmm. they're always just band aids, and like I advocate for social action, right? I I advocate for civil reform. If 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 we can do it, then you know I think we should, um, and we mm -hmm. see that deeply in our history as well. But if you put all your eggs in the political basket, you'll always be disappointed because empire, and this is the point of Daniel and Revelation, empire is always going to be a beast. Yes. And what do beasts do? They devour. They operate off of the ethic of self-advancement, self-preservation, right? And so it's always going to be a beast. Doesn't matter who's in power, right? <laughs> um, and and one scenario that really hit me was, uh, you know, looking at you know like Ellen White and the you know Adventism in history, like the big fight for prohibition, mm -hmm. and 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 they were really fighting for prohibition, which was a political civil movement, the temperance movement, uh, because they you know it wasn't because they were just a bunch of fundamentalists who didn't want people to drink. They were really standing up for poor communities that were being disproportionately affected by the alcohol um, epidemic. Um, and, and eventually it won out, right? Prohibition took place. And like, who would have guessed that prohibition, this thing that we fought for to bring goodness, would end up being creating the vacuum that allowed the mafia 
to mm. you know grow into the almost overwhelming levels of power through bootlegging that it, that it grew to you know so we need you know like the gospel the promise has to be intricately linked to this um yeah. or else we're just putting band-aids on you know we're, we're, we're not yeah. we're not really solving the issue um and so the, but there was a question that i had for you um and what you were saying that i'd love to get your thoughts on and it's um you know, you mentioned how racism is a, is a gospel issue. You know, we, mm -hmm. we have to preach to the heart. You know, it's, it's a gospel issue. How do you feel when, when people say, you know, anytime you bring up the topic or you discuss the topic and, and people say, oh, that's just politics. We shouldn't be talking about that. We should only be preaching the gospel. Th does that make sense? Does it make sense for them to say that's politics and we should just be preaching the gospel? No, does my question make sense? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't know if I if I asked it in a way that made sense. <laughs> I mean, how do I feel about that? Um, I mean, then then you're looking see, at the end of the day, you know, God is brilliant. And mm. the beauty of the Ten Commandments is that it's not just about our relationship with him. It's also about our relationship with each other. Mm. If we take out the the Bible says that if you uh, if if you uh, uh, um, if you commit one uh, act of uh, if you neglect Lord have mercy help my brain right about now <laughs> <laughs> it is evening time where Tina is guys so yes if you're guilty of one then you're guilty of all mm -hmm. so what I'm what I'm trying to say is we can't have a gospel there is no gospel that just says okay me i'm right with god just me and him but i'm going to treat my brethren and my sisters like garbage mm. there's nothing gospel about that whatsoever if your gospel is only relationship that you have with god then it's an incomplete gospel because god cares about our relationships with each other in mm. fact the bible says that it's how we relate to each other is how we are known that we're actually christians mm. So when we fail to relate to one another the way with godly love, then we're not actually modeling the character of Christ. We're not actually living out the gospel at all. Mm. So there is no such thing as, okay, that social issues are just, you know, that's political, but you know, my spirituality, nah, everything. Mm. How do you expect to win people for the kingdom? If you're just thinking about this connect, this, uh, is it horizontal or lateral? What am I? What am yeah, I yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that would be a uh, vertical. Yeah. Thank the you. Vertical <laughs> relationship. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's not just vertical. It has to be, it's vertical and it's horizontal. That's, mm. you know, that's the beauty of the, of, of the cross. Go ahead. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. Like the, 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 the vertical relationship, the vertical connection that we have with God is manifested. Yes. Through the horizontal relationships we have with one another. So like, yeah, if, if, if you're boasting about the vertical relationship and ignoring the horizontal ones, um, you don't really have the vertical relationship. Exactly. You know, and it's not just that. I think this is part of the reason why so many young people that I interact with today, um, not only in church, but also secular people mm -hmm. really want nothing to do with the church. Because when they look at the church, what they see is a bunch of people who get together on the weekends to sing about how forgiven they are. Mm -hmm. But they still perpetuate sexism and racism and all kinds of other isms. But hey, I want to sing about how forgiven I am. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. it's, and, and so it's like, yeah, you know, that's what the culture sees. You know, they see a bunch of people who have found a legal loophole to get into heaven. 
mm-hmm. without actually becoming people who for whom heaven is within if that makes sense you know mm-hmm. and so that's a really big evangelistic challenge is like getting people to see like no christianity is not just a legal loophole to get into heaven you know it's heaven is here the kingdom is here right now you know um so I guess that bleeds into the, 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 the next sort of element because you're a pastor in, in the mm-hmm. Adventist church. Um, so how do you see, and this is a huge question, like, oh my goodness, there's so many ways we could go with this. Um, so forgive me for, for, for the, the massive question. Um, how do you see your faith tribe as a whole sort of interacting with this tension? Hmm, how do I see my faith? faith tried i think my biggest concern is that um actually to be honest with you i don't think my faith is being tried Mm. but i do think there's a even i I do see a greater opportunity for the gospel to be preached Mm. um in, in the midst of this chaos I mean, what we're seeing fundamentally is a massive sin problem. And so um, I, I, I wouldn't say that my faith is being tried. I'm more concerned, one, that people, especially pastors, are losing sight of the gospel in the midst of this. Mm. Um, I'm more concerned about our relationships with, the, with one another. Uh, and that's why I go, I'll go back to what I said before that a, a, a challenge for me used to be I stay I try to keep myself away from racially charged situations so that I can see my brothers and sisters of other hues through the lens of Christ. Um, what I don't want and what Christ doesn't want us to do is to start hating people who are our oppressors. Mm. And so um, the challenge for me isn't really um, I'm still you know I I'm, I don't have any issues with anybody who's not black. But I, I am getting growing concerned by the, just the swings uh, mm-hmm. it, it, on the pendulum of how people are like, okay, well, now that this happens, now we need to go isolate ourselves and just be kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, our own little community. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with community. There's nothing wrong with support. There's nothing wrong with uplifting each other, especially under these type of situations. But at the end of the day, especially for Christians, well, our responsibility is not to become comfortable here mm-hmm. we yes we want to lift burdens yes we want to uh uh to be a little bit less oppressed but at the end of the day this world isn't our home it's just mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. and the efforts in trying to make this place more comfortable are becoming futile mm-hmm. and we should not lose sight of the fact that we are just temporary on this planet if you're a believer your your place in this world is temporary. I heard somebody say, uh, I heard a pastor say that, uh, you know, something about a, a visa versus a passport. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> I like it. Um, yep. Yeah. We need to act like we have a, is, is the passport the thing that's permanent or is it the visa? Uh, the visa. Well, it depends on the visa, I suppose. But generally oh, speaking, if, if, if you, if you have a, Yeah. Yeah, it, it, I suppose I suppose you could you could flip it as well though. But I get the point. Like, there's the permanency versus the impermanency. Yeah, yes. Yeah. 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 So I think I think that is just keeping myself um, to not being to be aware, but to not be so consumed that my mm-hmm. heart ends up being overwhelmed with hatred. 
Yes. Yeah. I, I think that's like a brilliant because that's that's part of the conversation that I'm trying to have right now with with people within my circle of influence is helping them realize like when when the church um, takes a stand on issues of justice, um, it's it's not, you know, like w at least from my perspective, like I'm not saying we need to go like join the Democratic Party and be like left wing you know, neo-Marxist <laughs> social justice warriors um, because that is driven by an, by, a, by an ideology that doesn't have the kingdom mm -hmm. in, its, in, its, in its midst, right? And so what we need is not, a, not so much a politically driven approach but a prophetic driven approach, right? Mm. Uh, an, an approach that is where you're looking at protest in a redemptive way. Um, where you're where you're looking at re reconciliation, right? Redemptive, a redemptive okay. pursuit, um, and so like I, you know, a perfect sort of like example. Um, I had a guy message me the other day and asked me, you know, um, you know, how do you engage the political sphere and the you know and the concept of humanitarian justice with the fact that this world's not our home, you know, all all that sort of tension, um, and and I said to him like. Part of the challenge, I think, is that most people are looking for, like, a really black and white formula on how to do this. Like, I don't know. I'm not sure that there is one. <laughs> like, I'm not sure that there's, like, this perfect little black and white formula that's, like, applied to every situation when it comes to social issues. And it's always going to be clear cut, you know, cookie cutter. Uh, but the best way that I wrestle with it, the best way that I confront this tension is by saying, all right. God called us to spread the kingdom, right? To preach the gospel, to to because that's the one that counts, right? If that's the kingdom that we want, it's it's not the kingdoms of this world. It's not creating utopia here. You never will. Human empire is a beast. It always will be. It doesn't matter who's in power. It doesn't matter what political philosophy you're using. I mean, if you doubt that, just go read some Niccolo Machiavelli, some Thomas Hobbes, or study the French Revolution. Like, it doesn't matter how good your intentions are. Human empire is always going to be a beast. That's how it functions. That's, it's just no other way. Um, and so the kingdom of heaven, really, that's, that's the solution, right? And that's where our energy and our focus needs to be. But as we pursue the kingdom of heaven, there's and this is where it gets messy there's a sense in which you have to address the issues that surround you because yeah. if you don't it can actually stop you from building yeah. the kingdom of heaven and so one example yeah. that i gave to this guy was the uh, urban renewal project i think it was the 1940s in new york um where there was there was a government driven project to displace poor communities so they could pretty up new york city but you know basically um, and I said, like, imagine you go to Brooklyn during the 1940s and you want to spread the gospel, you want to build the kingdom, but you got all these Bible study contacts and they just keep disappearing. And then eventually you realize, like, oh, the reason why they're disappearing is because all these people are being kicked out of their homes and displaced by this underhanded urban renewal project, which is unjust, you know, it's socially and politically unjust. And it's like, you can't build the kingdom of God there. If you don't actually oppose this and raise your voice against it, you know, and so I don't know if that's like the full thing because I'm not like, you know, the end all be all in this conversation and there's so much about it I understand. I don't understand, but it seems to me like when it comes to building the kingdom of God, mm -hmm. you can't separate it 
from from a cry for justice in these areas because if you just hold silence it actually stops kingdom growth i don't know if that makes any sense anyway it, it does. I, yeah. I, you know, I wanted to jump back in and say something. Um, when you asked me about, you know, if I'm in a crisis or anything, um, I will say when you're talking about this, if there's one frustration I honestly have, it's that my white and Hispanic brothers and sisters uh, are pretty silent on these issues. Mm. Um, that is probably the one thing that challenges me the most yeah is that the the people that i'm co-laboring with to build the kingdom will see the same stuff that i'm seeing and there will be silence mm. um i remember when i was in seminary and philando castile got killed mm -hmm. i walked into my uh my my class that morning and i was undone i was just so bothered that the, he was reaching for his cell phone. They assumed he was reaching for a gun and they killed him. And I walked into class and obviously everybody who's, you know, uh, uh, African-American, they're being, they're greatly affected by this. Mm. And I walk into class and the teacher's like, and I, and listen, the teacher's a brilliant theologian, brilliant mm. theologian. I respect him. Um, but you know, he's, he, they got, they got stuff they got to do. They walk into the class and instead of being in tune with what's happening in the country is, oh, okay, well, we got another day of class and let's go ahead and have, open up with prayer and get right to the word. Mm, really? Mm, mm. So I raised my hand cause I was so offended, mm. offended. And it's not just the experience at Andrews. At Southern, it was the same thing. There's this ignorance, a mm. uh, uh, lack of this this ability to be theologically sound, but keep your head in the sand when it yes. comes to mm. people. Mm. Mm. So like, you know, Barack Obama wins the presidency for the first time. No mention of it. I mean, at Southern, not even from a historical perspective, you don't have to be mm. a, a Democrat or whatever to celebrate that something historical took place. Mm. You can acknowledge that on behalf of the people who are going to your school. Mm. When something tragic like a Philando Castile or a Trayvon Martin or a, a Ahmaud Aubrey happens, I mean, we are so quick to think theologically and think mm. eschato eschatology and forget about people in the process. Mm. The mm. very people we're trying to win to the kingdom. Yeah. How do we win people if we're insensitive to the sufferings that they're going through? Yeah. It's hard to do that. And so I was outraged. So you you asked me, you know, what kind of gets under my skin? It's that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. It's the stuff where our 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 theology is is our our love for God mm -hmm. is not manifesting itself in a way that loves people. That's mm -hmm. what frustrates me. Yeah. So I end up having to care for my people, but I'm only doing it by myself. We want to see things change, but we can't do change by ourselves. We just can't. Hmm. Slaves did not come out of slavery by uh, by by just them working hard and doing all the work with themselves. No, it took also the efforts of white people hmm. who became outraged to join forces with black African slaves to help free slaves. So when I so when my my white brothers and sisters and my Hispanic brothers and sisters are 
just keep their heads in the sands on these type of issues that's offensive to me because we're preaching we're part of the same church preaching the exact same gospel if you were being oppressed i'd be there for you mm. but where are you when i'm hurting that's what bothers me yeah yeah absolutely you know one of the one of the things that i mentioned this week um as well and you know a lot of people were really blown away by it in a positive way and mm -hmm. you know some some took offense to it but you know that's always going to happen um but it's exactly what you're saying it's the historic tendency to be theologically sound mm -hmm. and socially inept. Yeah. And so what, what, what we have when we have good theology that doesn't translate to practical humanitarian action is you, you have an anorexic message. You know, like that's, that's really all you have. And we see the, we see the, the grievous effects of this, kind of consciousness that is theologically sound but socially disconnected we see it in in um in germany during you know the rise of the third reich where where adventism in germany actually cooperated with the third reich you know they they erased jews from membership they changed sabbath school to bible class so they wouldn't be associated with jews you know like they did all these things and when you look at Adventism in Germany during that time, they didn't change the three angels' messages. Mm -hmm. They were still preaching and teaching the same stuff, but it didn't translate into opposition. It didn't translate into righteous resistance. It didn't translate into redemptive protest. They just kind of went with it, you know? Um, and you look at Adventism in South Africa with apartheid, you know? It, there was cooperation as well, you know, Adventism in America with Jim Crow. It's the same thing. And it's like, you know, we have this message and we have this prophetic message that's so deeply rooted in a protest of human empire. Mm -hmm. And then, but when push comes to shove, we just kind of parallel human empire. And we keep preaching the same theology, but it's lost its power because it's no longer actually has the kind of social impact that it's meant to have, you know? And so like, this is what I'm saying, like what you're saying right now is so key because what's the point of having a theologically sound narrative mm -hmm. if it doesn't radically challenge empire, you know? Can I jump in? Go, go for it, yeah. Okay, as you were talking, I was thinking about the ministry of Christ. And think about this, how, how whack would this be if Jesus came here on this earth and all he did was do the preaching and teaching? Mm -hmm. No, when he came here, he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yeah. And during his earthly ministry, he was modeling in a practical way, spiritually and practically mm -hmm. what the kingdom of heaven looked like. So this whole idea that there's a gospel that is dis disassociated or I don't know if that was the word I was looking for, but I'm going to roll with it. Uh, th this idea <laughs> that the king that you know the gospel is disconnected from human suffering is just faulty mm. because when we look at the ministry of Christ, he's not only preaching and teaching, but he's dealing with people practical. He's lifting people mm. who are oppressed. He's healing yeah. the 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 sick. He's raising the dead. Mm. He's giving the people on the ground a visual of what the kingdom looks like, how it should be reflective. Yeah. So if 
our I, our idea of gospel ministry is not just spiritual, which that that part is important, but it should also translate in a way that we're actually helping lift people from mm -hmm. their suffering. Mm. If our gospel is not calling us to do that, that's not you no know, some kind of you know weird thing over there. No, it's part of the ministry. That's yeah. what we see. He preaches, he teaches, and then Jesus does. That's, that's what right. we see him do. That's and right. that's what he equips the apostles to do, mm. to preach and teach and do even greater works than what he did. Mm. Mm. You know, one of the things that frustrates me is when people say, um, just this is the point we've made already, uh, when people say, you know, like, we, we can't fix the problems of the world, so we just have to focus on the gospel. And I agree. Like, I agree. I think we need to we need to keep ourselves balanced by recognizing that empire is never going to redeem empire. I'm okay yeah. with that. Um, but when I look at Jesus, since we're on to Jesus, it's like Jesus knew mm -hmm. that he wasn't going to get rid of death and disease. That's right. And he still healed and raised the dead. That's right. You know what I mean? Yes. And it's like, Our no. <laughs> we're not going to get rid of suffering. We're not yes. going to get rid of injustice. But we yes. should still oppose it. We should yes. still protest it in, in a yes. redemptive way. You know, I'm not saying let's go out and loot, you know, like, but but we, and, and I think that's part of the difficulty in this conversation is that the church has been so silent in terms of, you know, in terms of protest that it's like, what does redemptive protest look like? Mm -hmm. You know, what does an atonement driven um, social justice look like? If we don't have that model, the only model people have is vindictive justice. Mm. And so like, and, and I've seen a lot of people in the church condemning the vindictive justice that has emerged in a lot of these riots. And I, you know, equally so, like, I, I think it's horrible. But at the same time, we have to wonder, like, what are people meant to do if the church hasn't modeled redemptive justice? Mm. And what does redemptive justice even look like? Like, have we had that conversation? Have we looked at our theology and said, here's the doctrine? Like, I preached a sermon this last Sabbath from my church called Atonement Living, where mm -hmm. the, the basic premise of it is that the atonement in Scripture is not just something Jesus did on the cross. The atonement is a process where God brings all things back to oneness, right? Atone at one. He brings all things back to oneness. And, and at the end of the story of scripture is this universal harmony. Everything's back at one, right? Atonement. And so the atonement is this process that flows through history where God brings all things back to oneness at the end of time. And yet when you read Paul, he's telling the church to live in that oneness already. Mm -hmm. So he's calling Christians. He's like, live as one, right? And, and, and you see these verses repeatedly where he's calling people, you know, no longer Jew or Greek, all, you know, male or female, slave or free, all are one. That's atonement, right? There's this harmony already. There's this oneness. And, and the question for me is like, have we as a church looked at this doctrine of the atonement, this process of restoring harmony and oneness and said, let's develop a, a method of protest and justice from this perspective? You know, and, so, and if we don't do that, then, you know, people, all people have is the anger yeah. and, the, and the vindictiveness. Anyways, yeah. It's just... I, I think that part of the reason we don't have that is because we're really not following Matthew 18. Mm. When we neglect the process of reconciliation, this is what you get. Mm -hmm. the, the Bible has already laid out a game plan as to how to restore and reconcile relationships. And we are not following it. We tell other people to follow it. <laughs> but but yeah. we, as especially as ministry leaders, 
and leaders of the the the, the broader sense of the church yep. we're not following that in fact yep. we're trying to avoid that like the plague That's and right. i think that that plays into the frustrations that african americans have especially in the adventist church that listen we're trying to have this conversation with you yes it's uncomfortable nobody likes confrontation mm -hmm. nobody likes awkward you know you know you drama nobody likes drama but at the end of the day if we are going to do anything the way that god would have us to do then we are missing steps in this process that's right this whole reconciliation and redemption does not happen without us following part part one biblical steps um, number two is going to require for us to do some cross-cultural ministry mm. and everybody ain't trying to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true, man. That brings me to probably the core, the heartbeat, um, mm -hmm. of what I want to, uh, of where I want to sort of end up because I want this podcast to not just be uh, a raising of awareness for people who are listening, but also to have some practical, practical advice. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to look at from your perspective, what are some things that local Adventist churches can do? All right. So this is local Adventist churches, your church, my church, wherever they might be. What are some things that our churches can actually begin doing to become spaces of reconciliation in the conversation over over race? And, you know, it, there's lots of different social issues that plague our world right now. This is one that's at the forefront um, and so, what, yeah, what are some things from your perspective that we can begin doing to become spaces of healing, to, to move away from being silent and indifferent and irrelevant in this conversation to actually becoming agents or, or, or centers of, of healing um, uh -huh. in, in this chaos and in this tension and, and space? Um, yeah. What are your thoughts? Oh. Yeah, so here's here's what I, I believe. Uh, I want to give a major shout out to a couple of people. One, uh, Elder Don Livesay, who used, I don't know if he still is the uh, Lake Union president, um, and to Pastor Ken Wetmore. So I'll start backwards and then I've worked to Pastor Ken Wetmore. When I was in seminary, um, because your question was, you know, how can we practically become a place of healing and redemption and reconciliation practically? So while I was in seminary, uh, I think it was my last semester, or it might have been the second to last semester, Elder Don Livesay held a um, a panel discussion on a Sabbath afternoon. Oh, one of the best uses of the Sabbath. To in in a month that wasn't February. Praise Jesus for a conversation <laughs> of praise. Not in February. Yes. Woo, February becomes the most it's a, it's a rough month. <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, so he had he he hosted a conversation on race with a mixed panel in a month that was not February at a very very white church. I, I probably should have said very very, but at at a <laughs> help me Jesus uh, at a white church in Berrien Springs, Michigan. Hmm. The reason he had uh, hosted this discussion in this church was because he wanted the membership to show up for a, an event that'd be, that'd be hosted at their own church, right? So I was impressed. I was impressed that it was being led by a union president, um, white man, and that his purpose, his objective was to listen. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. 
That's mm. half the battle. Mm. Um, and so I showed up and many black people showed up. Mm. What I was hoping what was gonna happen because he initiated this and he had a panel of, of white people and black people. What I was hoping would happen was that there'd be the members themselves would show up because it's their church. Mm. Well, the unfortunate part was that 90% of the people that came were black. Mm. So we showed up for the occasion to hear and to listen to and, and to process the moment. But where were their members? They were absent. Um, um, I had a classmate in seminary who told me that at, uh, who not told me, but he told, he said publicly in class, you know, during, you know, February Black History Month, usually I go to PMC, but I don't go to PMC during Black History Month because that stuff doesn't apply to me. To your mm. question, um, you know, what can we do? The first thing that we can do to help the process is for people to be willing to listen. Like Marcos, I appreciate people who, especially people who are non-Black, being willing to even have the conversation. Yes, there's going to be some emotion and 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 some uh, frustration tied to this conversation because there's wounds there. What do you expect to happen mm. when you're talking to people who are wounded? Mm. You're going to get some feedback. But if you're just patient and hear us out, then, you know, it'll help you to be more informed. Half of the battle is just being some being willing to care. So I appreciated and I respected the fact the elder Don Livesay was willing to have that conversation. And then after he, uh, after the penalty was over, I mean, he apologized for the role that Lake Union had in, and being, uh, you know, facilitate being a part of the race issues in, in that region. Mm. Okay. Well, does that solve the race issue? No, but does, is that a good step forward? Absolutely. Because listen, the Holy spirit convicts us of sin. And, and for the, for somebody to come to the awareness that, okay, even if I myself may not have been the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the violator, my people were. And so on behalf, as a representative of this institution and my people, I want to say, I'm sorry, that mm. matters. Mm. Does it end there? No, it doesn't end there, but, but that helps to, uh, that that's part of the reconciliation process. Mm. Um, and then, uh, so that's that's him. The other person I want to give a major shout out to is a pastor in my area. His name is Ken Wetmore. He's a pastor at the Madison Campus Church here in Nashville, Tennessee. And um, I, I have to, I have to send you some of his. He'd be a great person to talk to because he's very, very honest about his journey. Hmm. Uh, on, on what there was a time in his life where he was offended by the phrase "Black Lives Matter." And now he's gotten to a point because he's, we have a group in Nashville called Imagine Nashville. And it's a group that consists of white and black pastors. So they're the pastors of South Central Conference, which is the regional conference. And then there's the pastors of the Kentucky Tennessee Conference, which obviously is the white conference. But we made a, a concerted effort. It started out with a pastor from Fordham and Ken Wetmore getting together, the pastors of the two largest churches in Nashville coming together and saying, listen, man, we, we, we in the same union. How mm. can we, what can we do to make better strides to, to, to heal this wound that exists between our people? And so from there, the kind of group has just grown. And I think the part to, to get to your question, part of it is fellowship. We spend too much time in silos. Mm. And so like this Imagine Nashville group is really good because it's 
the pastors from the Kentucky Tennessee Conference coming together with the pastors of South Central Conference and we eat together. We do ministry together. And as we as things happen in society, like we just had a panel discussion yesterday, yesterday afternoon, talking about the George Floyd situation, talking about uh, what does social justice mean and what does it look like? And him being Ken is willing to listen and to hear. And then he has some perspectives that are different from ours. And we're also willing and, and, and listening and hearing is just half the battle. Mm. I think that helps us to understand where each other is coming from and take the time to actually care. Yeah. I think the other part in, in terms of practicality is cross-cultural ministry. So one of the things I really looked forward to uh, when it came to pastoring on my own is being able to invite whoever I want to to come and preach <laughs> at my church. Yep. Um, one of the people that I had on my radar from the moment I graduated from Southern was one of my classmates who is a white pastor in Michigan conference, very talented preacher, very, very talented. I literally only heard him preach one time and I just mm. knew one day if I ever get the chance to give him an invitation, I want him to come and preach at my church. So he came and whoosh, would I tell you, he killed it. I mean, <laughs> he set me up so right to run an evangelistic series. I mean, wow. sir, I was like, man, I should have had to come when I was actually ready to preach my series uh but because uh, <laughs> he set me up so nicely mm. but my point was you we have platforms as leaders especially as pastors we have a platform how do you use your platform ken wetmore uh wetmore in february used his platform knowing his congregation wanting to make a difference in his context he celebrated black history month in his white church mm. And, and I mean, that's almost unheard of for mm. a white pastor to be that forward thinking. Yes, you're not going to solve race issues overnight, but exposing your congregation to something else that mm. they would not naturally, they would not naturally probably show up at our churches. But he invited myself and some other black preachers to, to preach at his church during Black History Month mm. and allowed us to just be ourselves and preach the gospel. Yeah. I mean, that stuff matters. Mm. And I applaud him for being that forward thinking. Um, but and, and I've done the same thing. I have invited uh, my former classmates, you know, even though there's been like some tension between, you know, me as a black person going to Southern and and I and I pastor in a regional context. I have not forgotten about the fact at the end of the day, we have talent in all shapes and colors. And, and and so what I you do with my platform, I don't know if this is a good answer, and I'm probably rambling at this point, but I'm just going to keep talking. Anyway. No, this is good, man. Um, keep going. <laughs> but it was important to me. One of the things that when I got to my church and and uh, and I met with my board, I, I outlined a list of core values. A core value for me is diversity. Mm. And it's diversity because that is... You know, God is the creator of all of us. Mm -hmm. He's not just the God of white people or the God of black. He's the God of everybody. Mm -hmm. And so diversity is something that he created. Therefore, it's something that I value as a Christian. Mm -hmm. And you, but you can't make that happen uh, uh, without making that uh, one. I, I showed my church a biblical perspective for making that as a core value, but I also had to put that into practice mm. and putting that into practice by inviting and encouraging people who don't look like me mm. to become a part of my church because they are welcome too. Mm. Too often, 
we think that our churches are just about us, our likes and our dislikes and all this other nonsense. No, we're trying to win as many people, no matter what they look like. So I think in a practical sense, we we need to do ministry differently. Hmm. We need to be a little bit more open yeah. and, and invite people and encourage people to participate who don't look like us. And so I, I'm doing the best that I can, but one, I'm involved. I stay in contact with my classmates who, especially the ones who are non-black, I stay in contact with them. I encourage them to, to, to come and I ask them, invite them to come and preach for me. And because uh, I want my members to be exposed, listen, black people are the only people who can preach. There's some white people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Oh. There's some white people who can throw down the word. There's some mm. Hispanics that can bring a word that mm. matters to me, God. And because the thing is, if we just keep ourselves isolated, then we miss out on how God is using people of different ethnic backgrounds to preach the gospel. We miss mm. out on their perspectives on the gospel. Mm. That stuff helps us to grow too. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah. in a practical sense, one, we need to expand our horizons. Mm. We are too, we're spending too many time, too much time in our own circles. We need to, uh, just like we need to, to be able to have, uh, to be in spaces where there are non-believers, we need to also be in spaces where there are people who don't look like us. Mm. We are never going to grow and learn if we continue to stay in our bubble. Mm-hmm. We have to come outside of our bubble in order to reach out, to touch, and to listen to people who don't look like us. Mm-hmm. And 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 then and then try to do ministry opportunities together. Mm-hmm. I think that helps with. I don't know if I made any sense. No, that was brilliant, man. That was br- so listening, cross cultural ministry. And look, those two are actually, this stuff is huge, man, because part of the, part of the difficulty I found is, um, and I can't speak for every Christian here. I'm, I'm an Adventist and I always have been. So it's the only faith tribe I can really, <laughs> I can really speak meaningfully into and about. Um, and, you know, from my experience is we're, we're not very good at listening altogether. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a there's a there's a sense there's a there's a consciousness within Adventism that we have the truth and other people listen to us, right? Mm. We don't listen to other people, um, and that is in itself problematic. It's narcissistic. It's sectarian. It's pathological. Yeah. Yeah. But it bleeds not. It, it, you know it 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 doesn't simply affect um, relationships with people from diverse worldviews. It rela- it affects relationships within our own denomination with people who are different from us. And and you're right. Like we're not we're not good at listening. Now I think you're trying to talk, but you're muted. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yes. Um, I agree with you. Uh, one thing I failed to mention is that the pastor that I brought in to preach for me, um, I did it one. Be- I I literally and <laughs> this may sound. I don't know how this is going to translate, but I'm just saying. <laughs> um, I invited him because he was white, and I knew that he was a gifted preacher. Because my core value that I'm trying to help foster change um, was he was the first person that I invited. But here's the other part about it. It didn't just end there. Not only did he preach a fantastic word um, and and uh, all that, but after it was over, before I took him to the airport, we had a very honest conversation about the experience that I had at Southern. Mm. And the race, uh, a, a conversation I did not anticipate us having, uh, a conversation about racism. Mm. And he asked me, what was your time like there? And I told him, and I was honest with him. And and what I appreciated about the conversation, even though it was unexpected, it was totally not planned. 
But um, I told him that my first part of my frustration is that you're like, where were you guys? Where were you guys when it came to us doing cross-cultural ministry with Oakwood and Southern for Deep Sabbath? Hmm. The, the few of us that were black, we showed up for those events. Hmm. Uh, I, I'm not going to name names, but they know who they are. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, when, when it came to Oakwood coming to Southern, the theology students, the, the, the only people who showed up for Deep Sabbath with Oakwood coming to Southern were the black students who were at Southern. There weren't white students or Hispanic students there unless they were asked to do something in the program. Mm. And so that translate that you you're not interested in this in this conversation about healing and even sharing the common thing that we're both trying to be pastors. Mm. And, mm. and so I, I express my frustration that, you know, where are you when it comes to things that with regards to us, we, we show up for everything. But where are you? And so he listened, he listened and he was surprised. He's like, man, I didn't, he's like, did, 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 did everybody feel that way? Well, I can't speak on behalf of everybody else, but I can definitely say that, you know, there is this burden put on black people to be the ones to be the bigger people hmm. to, to, to be, to be the ones to do things the, you know, you know, be the, be the better person. But I, I really want to challenge my, my, my white brothers and sisters, my Hispanic brothers and sisters. Listen, this thing affects you too. If you cannot call yourself a Christian and be dismissive about these things, hmm. to not care, to not show up, to not even be willing to listen. So after we had the conversation, he heard me out and, um, and I was just, and I was frank with him. I wasn't like, you know, disrespectful, hmm. but I was honest with him at the end of it. He's like, you know what? I just want to say that I'm sorry. Hmm. I am sorry that I, it's, it's like being in a relationship with somebody who does not pay, like you're married, I'm married, right? Mm. So it's like you're in a marriage relationship with somebody who's totally checked out on the relationship. Mm. They are not paying attention to what's happening. They have no clue that you're unhappy mm -hmm. and they live in this weird <laughs> world. <laughs> yeah. Yes, they live in this weird world where they think there's a problem. Mm. And you're like, are you kidding me? Yes, there's a problem. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good metaphor. Yeah. Yes. And that's literally what's happening within our church mm. is that there's a population of folks who are like, really, there's a problem. And we're like, yo, we've been trying to tell you. Uh, <laughs> Such a yeah, no, that's that's a really well stated. And, you know, I think there's two things that go through my mind as you talk about listening and cross-cultural ministry, kind of the presence being there with each other. Um, one of the things that I learned um, some years ago is that you're not, you haven't really understood someone mm -hmm. unless you can defend what they believe mm. as though you believe it, mm -hmm. even if you don't believe it. Mm -hmm. Right? So, now, I learned that in the space of understanding worldviews. Because mm -hmm. uh, one of the things I realized was a lot of sermons and books I was reading about postmodernism, right? Because I have a passion for reaching secular emerging culture. There's postmodernism, metamodernistic uh, ideologies that govern the way people perceive reality. And a lot of the books and sermons I was hearing on the topic were brushing shoulders with the topic merely to say, here's why it's wrong, Right. They weren't brushing shoulders with the topic to appreciate it and mm -hmm. listen to it and learn. 
and mm-hmm. and that's something that adventists do a lot like if we listen to what other people believe it's only yes. so we can tell them why they're wrong yes and so you have to listening real listening isn't okay i'm gonna listen to you so i can prove to you why you're wrong real listening is i'm gonna listen to you so that i can appreciate the world the way you see it even if i don't see it that way you know i can appreciate it and i can celebrate the way you see the world and come together right and that's real understanding you know yeah and And my encouragement to people would be when it comes to these conversations is there's a lot of people who have a lot of opinions. And one of the things I've heard is, oh, you know, I don't want to get into those conversations because I just don't agree that there's a problem. Well, step number one, I don't need you to agree there's a problem. I need you to just listen. Yes. uh You know what I mean? Like, forget about agree. Just listen and listen with the intent to appreciate, not with the intent to debate. Yeah, and if, yeah. if we can take that step, <laughs> you know, that that in itself is huge, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and when you're talking about as well about the cross-cultural thing, I think here's one of the per- perspectives. Like I'm not black, I'm Latino. Um, so I, I, I haven't tasted this to the degree that the African-American community has tasted it. But here's here's one bit that I have tasted when it comes to this conversation that I think it's really important for all of us to at least appreciate and understand. That when it comes to cross-cultural ministry, uh, multiculturalism, all those things, there is there is an idea, there is a perspective that doesn't just permeate Adventism, it permeates Protestantism as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the idea that the right way to be a godly, righteous, holy, committed Christian is to express yourself as a white man mm-hmm. and 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 in my experience that is so oftentimes what limits sometimes cross-cultural interaction because like i've heard people say oh i would go but i don't like the way they worship yeah. and it's like mm-hmm. oh so you don't like the way they worship and, and that they try and baptize it with you know it's 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 you know the bible says we should worship like this and it's like no 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 what you're essentially saying is they don't worship like white people so therefore mm-hmm. i'm not going to go and be a part of what they're doing and so this Eurocentrism, right, this, this idea is something that I grew up with a lot, right? Um, like I remember asking my mom when I was a kid one time, I said to her, uh, Ma, how come, how come we don't worship God with the music of our island? Because right? mm. Pu- Puerto Rico, which is where my family is from, is a, is a, is a mixture of African, Taino, and, and Spaniard culture. Mm-hmm. And so it has unique, you know, um, musical styles and, and, and traditions. Um, and I wasn't sitting there advocating and saying like everything is, you know, free game, you know, uh, but I was curious. I was like, why, why don't we worship with some of the music of our island? And my mom's answer, I was probably 15, 16 at the time. Her answer was, well, when you give your life to Jesus, you leave your culture for his. And mm-hmm. at that time I was like, okay, I get it. But then I got older and I was like, wait a minute, mm-hmm. who said, who gets to decide what Jesus culture is? Mm-hmm. And and when I started reading through history, that's when I kind of discovered this whole idea that it's the people who are in positions of authority and power and culture who determine what godly culture is, you know. And so throughout history, the flow has been like godly music is European music, you know, and mm-hmm. godly dress is European dress and godly hairstyles are European hairstyles. And that doesn't just affect you know, um, Anglo congregations, that affects Hispanic congregations as well. I was raised to believe that if you had dreadlocks, you just were unholy and you weren't righteous and you didn't love God. Mm -hmm. You know, until I realized like, 
that's a Eurocentric perspective. That's basically saying, unless your hair looks like a white guy's, then you, <laughs> then you're worldly, you know? So I think, you know, when it comes to cross-cultural um, communication and cross-cultural ministry, we need to get to the place where we're willing to see the image of God reflected in diversity, mm-hmm. right? That your the, the, the diversity and the flavor that your culture brings is mm-hmm. a celebration of God's image. It's yes. not just one culture. The European mm-hmm. way is the only way. Like, And I don't have a problem with European culture. I love European culture. I love classical music. I love hymns. You know, I, I think it's awesome, you know? Um, mm-hmm. But it's not the only one. Mm-hmm. You know, when I look at when I look at tribal cultures, when I look at, you know, here in um, um, in Australia, the indigenous cultures and some of their traditions and stories and, and things that they bring to the table. I see the image of God in that, you know, and, and I, I think if we collectively as a church could get there, I don't know, maybe 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 I'm raising the bar too high. I don't know. Like I'm, I'm thinking out loud here, you know, because it's such a messy thing. But um, yeah, does that make sense? Like if 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 we really want to have I guess what I'm saying is this. If we really want to have cross-cultural ministry, um, multicultural ministry, we have to be willing to see the beauty of God, as you said, in people who don't look like us. Um, mm-hmm. And I would also add who don't sing like us, who don't dress like us, um, who mm-hmm. don't express themselves like us. That the image of God is there in their mm-hmm. uniqueness and diversity. Because the one mm-hmm. thing that frustrates me the most is churches that say they're multicultural, but really they're just multicolored. Mm-hmm. You know, they've mm-hmm. got lots of different cultures there, but everyone expresses themselves the European way. And it's like, mm-hmm. that's not really multicultural. You know, it's just, mm-hmm. yeah. So anyways, I've talked too much, man. Um, yeah, that happens to me. It's a weakness of mine. No, and I, here's the thing. So I have, uh, I have um, uh, uh, some heroes in ministry. You know, Pastor mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Nixon is one of my heroes in ministry. Uh, my mentor. Um, and then uh, my other uh, hero is Pastor Furman Fordham. And he's my hero for two reasons. One, because he voluntarily gave up his ordination uh, credential to become a commissioned pastor. Mm. Super mega talented. Mm. He could do anything in this church. Mm. He's a phenomenal preacher. He's a phenomenal teacher. He's a master administrator. I mean, he could literally mm. do anything in this church. And he voluntarily limited himself to be equal with women. Mm. Uh, so he's my hero for that reason. Uh, but two, he's also my hero because he used to be my pastor long before I recognized my call to ministry. And there was one thing that happened under his uh, leadership that I thought was worth, which is why I wanted to incorporate it into my own church. It may, it may not happen, but I definitely put, I put it as my core value and I'm being intentional about it. The church was multicultural. The when the church the the church in Lincoln, Nebraska, Allen Chapel is is a black church. The worship style was black, but when somehow I don't know if he intentionally did this or if it just happened, but the congregation started to change into being a culturally diverse church, and then he, the leadership of the church changed to a culturally diverse leadership, and so me noticed I was like, man, the congregation's different. And the leadership is different. So people are seeing a reflection of themselves everywhere in this church. Mm. And so when he would invite uh, conference leaders or other people to come and preach, they'd be like, man, this is what heaven looks like. Yeah. Like people were blessed yeah. 
this is Lincoln, Nebraska. Ain't nobody thinking about no Lincoln, Nebraska. But for, <laughs> but for a moment, you know, during his his leadership, the hmm. church was growing and booming because people were seeing, okay, so this is what you know the Lord is praying praying about that they may see that 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 we they are that may they be one as you know we are one. And so that was being hmm. reflected in the church. And it was such a powerful thing for me to see. I was like, man, wouldn't it be cool for a black pastor to pastor a white church or for a white pastor to pastor a black church? Like those are, that's like innovative cross-cultural thinking, but we ain't ready for that kind of stuff. I remember hmm. when I was interviewing, um, uh, uh, you know, looking for a call and a conference president said to me, I wish that I could hire you and place you in my church because, uh, you know, on paper, you, you, you look gifted, you're talented and, and I'm listening to you speak and, and, and whatever. And I would love to do that, but you know, our church ain't ready for that kind of stuff. Mm. And, and so what I, my, my thought to that is really, really, so we're just going to be okay with our churches not being ready for that kind of stuff. Mm. Are we, are we trying to prepare for the coming of Jesus or are we not? I mean, <laughs> we, we go. <laughs> yep. <laughs> we bear responsibility. See, we, we can't just babysit our people. We have to challenge. If the gospel that we're preaching is not confronting us on sin, regardless of what it is, hmm. then what are we preaching? Hmm. The gospel is going to be confrontational. Jesus is not interested in us just chilling up in our churches, eating haystacks, drinking postum. <laughs> that is not what we exist for. That's right. He's trying to save our tail feathers. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, we we cannot. Yes, yes, there are contexts mm. where our you know it's easier to to do ministry where people look like you, so you can relate better. I understand that. Nothing knocking that, but there is something wrong with saying, okay, well, we kind of want to keep the status quo. Mm. Really, Jesus didn't come here trying to keep no status quo. Mm -hmm. Yes, he wasn't trying to wait. To, he wasn't trying to. He uh, he said, I did not come to destroy the law, but I came to fulfill it. He wants us to fulfill it. He's not to, we're not trying to destroy anything, but we're trying to fulfill what, what God has called us to fulfill. So um, I don't know how I got on that tangent. Help me out. That preacher. was it. That was it. I loved it, Tina. That was it. Ah, oh, that was awesome. And you're so right. Because the thing is, you know, um, John Eldridge, Eldridge said in one of his books, I can't remember which one it was. Um, they didn't crucify Jesus. No, Jesus wasn't crucified because he was boring. Mm -hmm. He was crucified because he was unsafe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He was unsafe to the establishment. Mm -hmm. He was unsafe to the cultural, um, cultural, what's the word I'm looking for? Expectations. Mm -hmm. The way in which he lived, the way in which he operated was a constant protest and rebuke to cultural convention, religious convention, um, everything that people expected out of God and out of godliness, Jesus contradicted it, you know? Yeah. And it's like, you look at the life of Jesus, and I think this is one of the tragedies in modern Christianity is we've, we've neutered Jesus a lot. Mm -hmm. we, we've turned Jesus into way too much of a nice guy. Um, and it's like, I'm sorry, nice guys don't end up on a cross. You know, like mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Jesus ended up on a cross next to two criminals. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. which means that in the eyes of his enemies, he was a criminal. Yes. You know, he they, they, they didn't crucify and oh, there's the son of God dying. For, no, like Jesus was a criminal in their eyes. You know, mm-hmm. the, you know, he the, we, we talk about how they called him a wine bibber, you know, a drunkard because he hung out with, you know, unsavory types of characters. Um but, you know, what do you think the conversations were after he cleansed the temple? Mm, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. you think they sat there and, you know, the Pharisees and religious leaders and market, you know, the, the salesmen sat there and said, oh, yeah, Jesus cleansed the temple. And, um, you know, it was a it was a righteous act and it has some parallels to the judgment at the end of time and the cleansing of the sanctuary. and have, No, like. Come on, man. They probably accused him of vandalism and assault. And, you know, I mean, they plotted to kill him mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because he was unsafe. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that as, a, you know, right now there's a lot of looting and vandalism going on. So I'm not trying to draw parallels between those two. The point I'm <laughs> making is he was unsafe. Mm-hmm. He, he was not comfortable to be around, particularly if you were interested in the status quo. Yeah, yeah. And if the Jesus we believe in today is the historical Jesus, the true Jesus, the real Jesus, mm-hmm. he'll make us just as uncomfortable today. Mm-hmm. He'll challenge yeah, I mean, us. We we have to. We don't like confrontation, and confrontation is uncomfortable yeah. and, and all that other stuff. But it is part of the process of sanctification, period. Mm-hmm. Christ is not interested. We, the way that we are, are unfit for the kingdom. Mm. Mm. which means there has to be changes. We mm. have to be modified. There is the pruning process and that joint hurts. Mm-hmm. It's extremely uncomfortable, but it's ever so necessary. Yeah. We cannot grow if we are just keep continuing to do what we're doing. Mm. And it's not, and so the thing is we are, our witness is at stake by us refusing to uh, be willing to be confronted. Uh, when I was pastoring at Oakwood, Dr. Bird asked me to reach out to Pastor Jim Simbola to see if he'd be willing to preach for one of our uh, uh, prayer days. And so I, I, I uh, emailed him and I asked him, you know, would you be willing to preach for our, one of our prayer days? And so he asked me, he said, he said, give me a call. I want to talk to you. So I was like, oh, this is, this is cool. I get to talk to Jim Simbola. <laughs> The prayer guru. <laughs> <laughs> so I called him and he basically rejected the offer. Um, and one of the reasons he rejected the offer is because he said, I'm, I look at, I, I'm, I'm very well aware of, uh, of, you know, of you all Adventists. And one of the things that concerns me, he said, well, he had two issues. One of his issues was the fact that we, when we do evangelism, we paint Sunday keepers like they are the Antichrist, as mm. if their relationship with God is not genuine, mm. as if they aren't operating under the best knowledge that they have. Mm. And uh, he said, I love Jesus as much as y'all do. But, mm. you know, when you guys preach, um, uh, when you do evangelistic series, you are saying that because we're Sunday keepers that we're lost. Mm. I simply don't believe that. And so there was a theological issue there. Um, and then I tried to, <laughs> I tried to smooth that thing over, but it didn't work because, uh, <laughs> but, but that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a conversation to off the record. Um, mm. but the other issue he had is he said, but you guys have a race problem. 
And so we we think that, you know, we pride ourselves on how we are so theologically sound and correct. And listen, Adventism is the best denomination, I believe, to be in because we do have, we, we practice and we preach the whole truth. We don't hold nothing back. But at the same time, there is almost like a stain on our witness because of how we are relating to one another. And I fundamentally believe that the Holy Spirit is trying to confront us on this issue because we have something to offer, but we don't even know how to get along among in, amongst ourselves. Mm. We don't. Mm. And that hurts our witness. It hurts our witness. Mm. I remember when I was in seminary and uh, uh, I did field school with Dr. Ron Cluzet and there was these two black women. And so the field school was taking place at a white church. And, um, and so these women, they were coming, you know, every single night and they were just really, they were just, they were with him. I, mm. I, I think it had been a while since I had seen somebody so excited about the Sabbath. Mm. I was like, man, we don't even get excited about the Sabbath, like the way they're getting excited about the Sabbath. <laughs> yep. Um, but one of their, one of the things that dis, that was, uh, discouraging for them, they were like, so where are the black people at? And are there any black Adventists? Like, you know, mm. how does that work? And and so they were, they found themselves like they're trying to figure out, okay, I, I'm accepting this message, but I'm also seeing that there's a disconnect here. Mm. And the thing is, our witness is affected mm. by, by the, by us not being able to do what the Bible says with regards to healing relationships. Mm. We cannot just keep sweeping this thing under the rug, hoping that it's going to go away. I am so thankful. Like what did my heart proud was to see even some of my classmates from Southern who I've never seen say anything mm. about race, anything. And now I'm seeing them make statements saying, you know what? Okay, this is not right. I, I wish it would have happened sooner, but praise God that it's happening at all. Mm. Because it means that, that the Holy Spirit, I believe that that's a God thing. Only God can soften the hearts of people to mm. help them to see outside of themselves. That's now, it. is it going to solve world issues overnight? Absolutely not. But my goodness, it's the first step in the right direction. Mm. And I praise Jesus for that. Absolutely. And as people of color, we have to be patient and let God work out his process with people who don't get it yet. Hmm. I heard a powerful sermon by one of my, my newfound favorite preachers. His name is, I listen to sermons a lot lately. So <laughs> I just had, I just to my brain. So his name is Pastor Melvin Warfield. Oh my Lord. Hmm. He preached a sermon where he talked about Stephen and Saul turned Paul. Hmm. Um, and he talked about that, that Saul had to become on a journey. At first, Saul was a person who hated, you know, he hated Christendom thought it was, you know, the, a bunch of nonsense that I need to get rid of. Mm. But over time, the Lord had to confront him and work on his heart. And then he became the biggest advocate. Yep. That, that, that conversion process of Paul um, is, is, is something that can happen to anyone if they allow the Holy Spirit to work on their hearts. Mm. And so, uh, but, but we have to be patient. Yes, Stephen died in the process. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Woo! yes. Stephen died in the process, yep, but at, yep. but at the end of the day, God got a hold of Paul and he became one of the, the, the biggest 
you know, mm. advocates for Jesus. Mm. And so as, as people who have been oppressed, we have to be patient and let the Holy Spirit do his work mm. on, on people who are not quite there yet, but they'll get yeah. there either one way or the other. That's right. Yeah. I love it, Tina. I love it, man. That was an awesome ceremony. Huh? We're going to do the doxology now. And uh, <laughs> no, that was that was beautiful. That was powerful, man. And I, I love the way in which you framed this discussion in a redemptive ethic, right? Mm -hmm. um, because it's you know it, it is easy to frame this discussion in a vindictive ethic, but the beauty of the gospel is that it 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 breaks those barriers down. And I think that's the that's that's the the powerful thing about salvation, right? And and. Um, what I see in scripture and what I would love to see reflected more in local Adventist churches. I can't speak about the world around because I don't know about the world around, but I'm familiar with the West. And, mm -hmm. and I would love to see this gospel that Paul was preaching, right? This gospel that Jesus was preaching, that it's not just me sitting on a pew waiting for heaven to come, mm -hmm. but that heaven is already here and it's in me and I can live it out in my community, right? I can live out atonement living in my sphere of influence and bring healing and harmony and oneness and reconciliation to all of the different chaos. Uh, I don't know how you can say chaos in plural, but <laughs> you know, chaos is, I don't know. Um, I, I can bring, I can, I can be a part of, of, of restoration, right? As God is doing this work um, and, and live it out in the here and now. And it's, it's interesting because you, you go back as far as like, you know, Karl Marx or Friedrich Nietzsche and their critiques of Christianity was that Christians were, were people who, and, and look, as much as I disagree with Nietzsche and Marx on a whole number of things, they were spot on on their critique that Christians were people who were pursuing a pie in the sky. Mm. And they were pursuing a pie in the sky to the degree that they had no practical, relevant, meaningful presence in, mm. the, in the present suffering that surrounded them. They were useless. And so for Marx and Nietzsche, it was like, you know, these, these people are useless when it comes to actually addressing what's happening around them because they just spend their whole life waiting for a pie in the sky. And for them, it was laughable. It was, it was, it was something, you know, it, it, it wasn't that they were mocking it, it's that the very act mocked itself. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, you know, if, if we want to be a church that's relevant with a relevant voice, we need to rediscover that the kingdom of God is here and not here. You know, that mm -hmm. old theological paradigm that there is a day in which the heavens will roll back like a scroll. But until then, the kingdom of heaven is in us and mm -hmm. we can live it out in the here and now when it comes to racism and all kinds of other things, you know. But uh, right now, because racism is such a big topic, we really need to focus on that and see, like, how can our local churches become spaces of reconciliation in this mm -hmm. conversation? Um, so thank you so much, Tina. Look, I'm going to give you the last word and then we're going to wrap up. Um, and um, as you share your last word, I also want to ask you if there's anyone who wants to contact you after hearing this episode or wants to check out any projects you're doing online, um, how can they find you? Um, yeah, just uh, share any um, spaces that you've got going on that, that people can join you, join you in. I, I, I want to implore the listeners to mm. care. It will be easy to even bypass this episode of the podcast because you're more interested in something else. But at a time where I believe that the Lord has allowed for, I've been wrestling with 
what is it about this George Floyd situation that has grabbed the globe's attention? Mm -hmm. There have been other deaths that did not garner this much attention. I believe that God allows for things like this, whether it's COVID-19 or a situation like this, he allows for these things to happen is because he's trying to get our attention. And so I want to encourage the listeners to listen and pay attention because there's something that God is wanting you to understand about what's happening with his people. He's wanting us to care. And we have, we are too self-absorbed. We are too self-focused and love at the core of what it is, is about being other centered. And so even though this is not, it, it may, it may be unfamiliar territory, but God is calling for us to pay attention to a whole lot of things that we've been ignoring for a long time. So I guess those would be my lasting words is it would be a travesty to go through all of this and have learned nothing to come out the same way that we were before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That would be a tragedy. Absolutely. So um, I, I encourage you, those who are listening to, uh, while we have this opportunity where the nation is, 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 you know, under, is on focus, uh, to pay attention to what's happening. Mm. Um, and then to the other thing, uh, where can you find me? Uh, www.firstsda.org <laughs> 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 www is my church website. Um, and I'm also on Facebook if you want to you know, follow me from time to time. I post one-on-one -on -one interviews with ministry leaders and pastors that I find interesting because I'm inquisitive, just like uh, Marcos Torres. And I like mm. to pick the brains of those who, you know, uh, have something to say. And mm. uh, so this is my first time being <laughs> interviewed because normally I'm interviewing other people. Okay. So first SDA.org and on Facebook, just your personal account, you can find different interviews. Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay, all the interviews are there on you. Right, so I'll put the links up on the show notes so people can okay. find you and uh, yeah. check some of that stuff out. Tina, thank you so much for hanging out today. I really appreciate you taking the time to share on this really heavy topic. And for those of you <clears throat> who have been listening, I really appreciate you hanging out with us as well. I want to encourage you to think about these things. And as Tina said, um, to really take the time to listen and um, just really process and appreciate the variables in this conversation. And um, until then, guys, I will uh, let you go and hopefully catch you next week with a new episode. Take care and God bless.